Thank you, Anderson. I am Chris Cuomo, and welcome to Primetime. Breaking news. We can finally show you parts of Grand Bahama Island that no one has been able to get to until now. Our cameras are there, and you're going to see for yourself the magnitude of the destruction and why people on the ground there fear news about more fatalities. Now, that fear of the unknown spreads to what could be thousands of people missing. Rescuers are battling flooding that you're going to see. They're very hard to reach areas. There are no communications. We told you about one young woman's search for family. We have new information on her situation tonight. You're going to want to hear it. We're also live on the ground in the Carolinas, where the eye wall of Dorian is now closing in. And we have a special guest tonight on a different kind of storm. What does Trump insider Chris Christie make of the president's latest war with the truth? Not so sharpie. What do you say? Let's get after it. All right, let's deal with the serious situation first. This is what we've been waiting to see. This is what Dorian left behind on the part of Grand Bahama Island that had been totally cut off until today. Finally, some of the floodwaters are receding. Patrick Oppman made his way there with his team. I want to show you, Patrick, show you that he's okay. I want to talk to him about what that experience was like today. But first, let's show the viewers what Patrick and his team recorded. This behind me is the clinic, and it has been leveled by Hurricane Dorian's Category 5 winds that came screaming through here. There are people in the Bahamas who say that the Abacos, different islands, received the worst damage and they need to come here. They need to come to the remote places on Grand Bahama Island that very few have visited. We're only about an hour from Freeport, but it took us much longer to get here driving around debris like this. You can see in every direction for miles, all the power lines are down. Most of the poles are down. There are trees down. You don't see any cars coming back and forth because there's nothing or nowhere to go to here. This was the town center. Over there, come look at this, it's amazing, is, was the police station. Hurricane Dorian came here and ripped the roof clean off. But not only that, you think of the power that a storm needs to knock down entire cement walls. We don't know if anybody was here, but it's hard to imagine they could have survived because residents say the storm surge, and you can see the line just up there, got this high, almost all the way to the roof, 17 feet, they said, they measured it. You can see the water stains all the way down to the ground, the devastation everywhere you look. And the town goes all the way back to the water. There are some 300 homes here. Every home is either damaged or destroyed. You can see where the wind smashed into the sign, but somehow didn't tear it off. These are slabs of concrete, and they've been thrown around like they were nothing, like they weighed nothing. This is the High Rock prison. There's only one jail cell, and it's not guarding anybody now. We don't know if anybody was here when the storm came behind bars. They certainly didn't stick around. There's nothing left in this town. And the people say 
they've yet to receive any help from the government. Like so many Bahamians, they are waiting for that assistance to come. Well, the silence is so scary. I mean, that situation checks every box. Who is gone for good? Who is missing? How do you rescue? How do you restore law and order and power and essentials? Now, Patrick, uh, first of all, thank God you and your team are safe. I know you've been working around the clock. Thank you for bringing our viewers the information so that they can stay connected. What about people? Who did you see there? What have you heard about? What is the untold story of concern in that area? It was a ghost town, Chris, and it took us days to get out there. We kept trying, and the water was just too deep. When we drove out there, the water came halfway up the car. Our driver a couple times wanted to go back. The road was missing in several areas. We went forward because we knew there was a great story out there. The damage was absolutely stunning. I've seen a lot of really awful things in the last week, and this was up there. I don't want to get too graphic. You could smell death, the stench of death, everywhere we went. We were told by residents uh, that... Crews came in today to look for bodies. We don't know exactly what they found. It was a ghost town out there, Chris. That town, just that one town we were, 300 people live there. They're still on their own. So it is the unknown that is the biggest fear. Now, how many places like that are there that still need to be surveyed and accounted for? They're town after town. And the reason we wanted to go there is because that, you look at the map, that is where the Category 5 winds came in. That is where the absolute height of the storm surge, that was ground zero. So we knew that is where people were going to be in the greatest need. We've been in touch with people in that area ahead of the storm. So many people said, we're going to ride it out. We have a house that's on stilts that's 12 feet high. We'll be okay. We've not been able to reestablish contact with any of those people. We went out there to find them. We couldn't find anyone. Um, And those are the good structures that you were showing there in the town center, those with the masonry. A lot of those houses in those areas there are not like that. How far was that particular village from the water? That, that, That town was maybe half a mile, mile from the water. There were other residences that you could see the water and cars had been picked up and thrown into second story houses. There was a girl who had ridden out the storm with her dad there. He just built the house and, and quite a carpenter. And they showed me it was the top of the second floor. That's where the water got. And I said, well, how long did it go on for this? Two days. I mean, people are traumatized. You can tell they're dealing with post-traumatic stress. Uh, there is no help. Everywhere we went, we said, what can we get you? And they said, a water. Yeah. And luckily we've been on a, a run to buy water that day. And we gave away all our water. And, and, you know, you give somebody a bottle of water here that's been sitting in your car. It's hot. Uh, and they drink it like it was champagne. It's just the, the, the one item, the hardest to find item here. And, you know, it's the difference between life and death for so many people who are still stuck out in these areas where help has not arrived. And it's going to take time. And time is a killer. Uh, post-storm, a mile away from the water, the water was still 17 feet high in surge. That is incredible. I know you're doing a lot of good work for people on the ground. Uh, Take care of yourselves. Keep sending us back information so we can keep people connected. Patrick, be safe. Good to have you, brother. All right, so we're going to keep hearing stories like that as we get exposure to places. Where are the people left? Where were they not able to stay? Where are they gone? Who's missing? 
We're going to take you through all of it as we learn about it. We've got to stay connected to that story. Now, here in America, Dorian is moving. It's causing a lot of damage. There's a death toll here, five. We've got to go slow on those numbers. There's a long way to go. Let's see what happens. It's a Category 2 storm. That means winds in the 90s up to 110 miles an hour, now battering Myrtle Beach. We're going to take you there. Martin Savage is standing by with the latest. Next. Okay, so here's what we know. The power of this Category 2 hurricane has already taken lives in the United States, and hundreds of thousands are powerless in the Carolinas tonight, where the future holds more of the same, if not worse. People there are battling strong winds, flooding, and tornadoes. Martin Savage is on the ground in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, where they're feeling some of the worst effects of the storm. Martin, what can you tell us, and how are you doing? Well, Chris, of course, the storm is just a mere shadow of what it was when it went through the Bahamas. But it's a testament to the power of the storm that it still is able to continue to pummel even five, six days after that. The winds are down significantly from what they were earlier in the week, but they're still delivering a punishing blow to the Carolinas. You saw what it did to the earlier part of South Carolina, Myrtle Beach, which is now closer to North Carolina, is feeling the full brunt. It was not just the winds and the torrential rains, but a new threat today, tornadoes. These were spin-off tornadoes that came out of the darkness in the early morning hours, and they did do damage, destroying, in some cases, mobile homes completely, and others tearing the siding off of other community homes, bringing down trees. It's a pretty rough night still ahead here. Chris? Well, you know, Martin, you're a pro and you're always so measured and your voice is always so calming. But I know uh, that that is uncomfortable what you're standing in, even though it's dark and it's hard for people to see. Please, you and the team stay safe. Uh, Stay out of the worst of it if you can and stay in touch. Be well, okay? All right, let's go now to meteorologist Tom Sager. Let's figure out where the storm is now, where it's going, what the chances are. What can you tell us? Well, Chris, we still have the hurricane warnings that are in effect, and now they actually come all the way up to the lower neck of the Chesapeake. And as we look at the core of the system, it looks like it wants to kind of die out. But the winds continue to broaden. This is such a wide storm. Hurricane force winds out 60 miles now, and we're seeing the edge of the eye now clips part of the coastline. little concerned about the curvature of the outer banks, taking those bands and that storm uh, surge straight on. Notice the bands. This is what Martin was talking about. We had over uh, two dozen tornadoes. Tornado warnings today, and usually they're EF1, EF2. They're small, come down, they can do damage, but the video shows otherwise. Those were large today. Now as we watch the possibility of landfall, this will be up near Cape Lookout. The outer banks around the entire globe are some of the most susceptible areas for a storm surge, and we're going to see that. Broadening out now, we may have flight delays up and down the entire eastern corridor. And really, when we look at the spin of this, we're not over with this yet. We've had heavy rain on those bands well in advance. And then you get the core of that heavy rain. Flooding inland is a problem. But really, when we talk about the entire thing about this, I mean, even with tropical storm warnings up at Nantucket, Uh, and around Martha's Vineyard. This system now, we're ending the 13th straight day of forecasting this. Tomorrow's day 14. It's traveled 3,000 miles. And get this, where is it going next? 
Take a look at the forecast up toward Nova Scotia. It's going to have some problems there. South of Greenland, it becomes subtropical. It moves across the northern Atlantic, and they're going to have strong winds in Scotland by the middle of next week. It is amazing. One thing for sure is there will never be another hurricane with the name Dorian. I mean, it's not for some kind of hall of fame. It's for the sadness and the tragedy of it all. No doubt about it. This one's going away. Uh, Give it a couple more days. I think by tomorrow morning, Chris, we'll say goodbye off the Outer Banks. Oh, God willing. Tom, keep keep an eye on it, and we'll be back with you when we need you. All right, now we're going to switch topics here. We have a former governor who has a lot of experience in how to lead during a weather crisis. Former Governor Chris Christie is back on primetime. We're going to talk Hurricane Dorian and why it's added to this president's problems. But then we're going to tackle the tough part and this governor's new focus, solutions to what ails our politics most. Let's get after it. Next. Look, we're living in strange times. We've got a hurricane going up the coast and the president is fighting with the media about something that he said that was wrong. We're about a dozen times since Sunday that the president has made it a point to insist he was right about Dorian heading toward Alabama. It isn't and never was in any real way in any model we've ever been shown. This isn't about fact. It's about where we are in our discourse. This is where we are. Right now, I'm much more concerned about preventing any other loss of life, getting people to safe places, and then we'll worry about the election. The election will take care of itself. It's not this is where we were. No, this is where we are. I want you to remember Governor Chris Christie. Do you remember during Superstorm Sandy? I don't care about Bush. I don't care about Obama. I don't care about anything. I care about helping New Jersey. I'll hug anybody who comes here to help us. That's what he did. He got criticism. He didn't care. He's been in the mix. Now he's watching what's happening, and he thinks it is too much. He's trying to bring civility back to politics. Yes, I know. Put the smile on your face. We'll talk about that, too. We're going to talk problems and solutions. Governor, great to have you here. Good to be here, Chris. And and I mean that. I don't mean it to be confusing. We have to remember that's what a leader does. The game stops when people start dying or at risk. No more left-right anymore. Only what's reasonable. Listen, 365,000 homes destroyed in New Jersey in 24 hours. When that kind of disaster happens and what we're seeing in Dorian right now, um, you can't be worried about politics. And if you are, then you're not not being a leader. Um, Political fights can be kept till later. And part of what I'm trying to do with this new institute is to say, There has to be ways for us to begin to talk to each other again in order to solve problems. And what we're not doing now is we're not solving problems. We're not talking to each other. And I want to try to get a forum where people can actually do that. Now, let's look at just this one moment as metaphor, and then we'll go anywhere you want with it in terms of how you diagnose the problem. Um, People get information they misinterpret it in your position. Uh, President, too. Let's assume he was getting real time data on it. Let's assume they showed him a model. He was wrong about it going to Alabama. Um, Okay, end of the story. The National Weather Service came out and corrected it. He couldn't let it go. He took it as an insult. Now the media picks up on it. Why? That's what we do. If the president, powerful people are into it, we're into it. He doesn't let it go. He says that we're being fake. He's got poor McAleenan standing up there with a map that he drew a circle on. 
Now he's got some rear admiral coming out and saying, well, he did get a briefing that one showed that Alabama might get. Who does that in the middle of a hurricane? Well, you know, what's happening here, and this is a part of the symptom of the disease we're talking about, is the fight never ends. And so the president feels like he's under siege constantly, so he's never going to stop fighting. The media feels like they're under siege from the president. They're not going to stop fighting. The Congress feels like they're under siege. They're not going to stop fighting. And what's getting lost in all of this is the real concerns of real Americans who want their government to operate, whether it's at their local level, their state level, or the federal level. And I think it's just another example of it, Chris, that, that people are never taking their uniforms off, mm. ever. We're never sitting down together and having that conversation anymore when the uniform is off. So I heard some guy on Anderson's show. His name doesn't matter. I'll keep him out of it. I don't want him to get any more heat than he's going to get already. And he said, you know what? You guys just shouldn't pay so much attention to it. You know, you guys just never let it go. Since when does a president making a mistake about where a hurricane's going or any of the things that he said? I could literally waste our whole time now just telling you things that are demonstrably false that he said, many intentionally so. It's not our job to let it go. It's our job to expose it. We've just never dealt with somebody before who refuses to admit when they're wrong. What are we supposed to do? Well, listen, and, I, and, and this is what I think is that I think everybody's gotten out of hand. And I do think that there are elements of the media who have lost control because they feel under attack. Right. So now they're going to attack back. And, and you and I both see this. Now, two wrongs don't make a right on either side of it. And what I'm trying to do through this institute is to say to everybody, listen, no one has fought harder than I've fought at times. Um, and I've had sharp elbows and I've had critical things to say. And that's why when people, you know, are being critical of us trying to bring an institute together that's going to talk about bipartisanship and civility and getting things done, they're like, well, you haven't always been civil. Well, show me the person in public life who has always been civil. Um, tell me the person in public life in the last 25 years. In my view, this all started back in the mid-90s in a serious way with the contract with America and the attitude and tone that went on during that campaign in the mid-90s. Gingrich's campaign. Right. Then, Why? What did you see as a shift in that? What, what, what I saw there was that it became much more personal during the Clinton years. Um, and then the Clinton people got back to being personal as well. Luke Gingrich was reelect. quoted at the time as saying, you know, they don't teach you guys to be mean or something to that effect. Right. That you got to learn to be mean again, not compassionate conservative. And, and I think that's where it started. I, I really do. And, and I think that it's just evolved over the course of time and gotten significantly worse. I think a lot of things that President Clinton was involved in helped to make it coarser and worse. Then we had an election where people were saying that George W. Bush was an illegitimate president. And that caused more anger and upset and division in the country. You, you move from there to Iraq and the people who had different sides on that. Instead of saying the president did what he thought was best, he may have been wrong about some of the intel that he was given. But he was doing what he thought was in the best interest of the country. No, no, no. He was a war criminal. Um, so, well, the weapons of mass destruction thing turned out to be fake. So, so people well, felt deceived. Well, the and then you had Congress that had mud on them because they voted for a war. They said they got duped. Well, guess what? I think the president felt deceived, too. Um, you know, I've talked to the president about this and, you know, he was given intel that they told him this is a slam dunk. He absolutely has this stuff. They turned out to be wrong. So what we do, Chris, now is instead of people being wrong, they're liars, they're evil. It continued on with the stuff with President Obama and where was he born and was he a real American, a legitimate president there. I agree with the whole trajectory. The trajectory is really bad. We have never seen a president like this one. Well, no. We've never seen somebody. And you got to use the word because otherwise, you, if you ignore it, you empower it. 
He lies to the American people. I had the head of his campaign on the other day who said, uh, his press secretary for the campaign said, he's never lied to the American people. Yeah, I saw that. And That's I, a lie. Listen, I, I think that what you're dealing with now, um, and you know I've known the president for a long time. Um, and I've known him for 18 years. And this is someone who was never involved in politics before, never involved in the nuance or subtlety of the way you can at times in politics have to talk around issues until you really know what you're supposed to do. And, and, and I think, you know, Chris, the bottom line is the American people voted for Donald Trump because they were tired of what was going on in Washington. They wanted a disruptor. That's what they're getting. Now, some people are now going, well, that's too much for me. I don't want that disruption. Other people that I talk to really love it and want him to continue to do it. What I want to see happen is, regardless of the personalities involved, because we just talked about the fact that there's been 25 years of history on this, where Republicans and Democrats just don't deal with each other anymore. Obamacare passed with not one Republican vote, right? The tax cut passed this year with not one Democratic vote. That's just wrong. And it's no way that we can govern the country. I had a, a Democratic legislature for eight years in New Jersey, solidly Democrat, nearly veto-proof. And yet we got all kinds of things done in our state because we were willing to sit down with each other, reason with each other, and have personal relationships. One of the elements that I think is really missing here and is— And you fought, but you fixed— Right. You fought towards an end. You didn't fight just to fight. You fought because you believed in something and then you were willing to compromise. Okay, so I'm not going to get everything I'm going to get. We're not seeing that. No. And and I think those are the conversations we need to have. I want to use this institute as a forum to do that, to have these conversations so that people can see examples of how bipartisanship can work and is good for our country. And we need to do that. And, and, And I hope that the president is persuaded by this. I hope that Nancy Pelosi is persuaded by this, that members of Congress are persuaded by it ultimately, because I think the American people are near exhaustion from the fighting. And it's about time that everybody has to get with it. I can't disagree with any of that. I'll be honest. I hear it all the time, you know, Um, and I respect it. And frankly, we kind of designed the show around it. You know, I open the forum to everybody all the time. I believe in disagreement with decency. It doesn't matter what I'm going to be called as long as my kids aren't around. You know, I'm going to take it. I'm going to try and make it better for the audience. Right. In my professional life. Here's the one part I don't get. And then we'll go to break and we'll come back and talk about the ideas you have for solutions. I don't know that it can get better if there's no accountability. Uh, And I know that everybody does something like what we're seeing happen now in the White House, but not like this. And it doesn't matter who it is. Nobody on this president's side of the team, the fence, the line, whatever you want to call it, says, yeah, he's got to stop lying. He's got to stop attacking people the way he is. It's no good. It's unproductive. Nobody says it. Why would he ever change, Gov? Well, in our system... The accountability is there, Chris, and it's called the election. It's called the election. But it's short of that. I mean, come on. Well, but, we, but that is the key. Listen, I think our founders designed this country to be an argument, to be a perpetual argument with the three branches of government dividing up power, um, a lot of that power being co-equal and stressful and intention. You know, if I had a nickel for every time a legislator said to me, hey, governor, we're a co-equal branch of government, I'd be a wealthy guy. True. And right? if the president were coming out with charts and graphs about why this hurricane proves what he wants to do for global warming or what he doesn't want to do for global warming and why and he wanted to argue that all day long and he got angry and hot and he yelled at people. He told the media, you are too stupid to follow what I'm saying. I get it. 
but he's not taking on any brave fights. It's always personal. No, I don't think that's true, Chris. I don't think that's fair. Look at this with the hurricane. But, but yeah, but okay. He literally so, drew with a sharpie on a map something that's not true. But but let, let's let me take let me take issue with one thing you just said. Please. You said you know um, it's never about anything big or anything like that. It's always about something personal. I don't think that's the case. I think we've seen a president here at times. Um, where he is fighting for things that he really believes in. He is fighting with China over something he really believes in and has spoken about for 30 years, which is he doesn't believe the theft of intellectual property created by Americans and they're not being paid or compensated for it is fair. He thinks it hurts our country. It hurts our citizens. And he's willing to take on that fight. That's not a personal fight to him. Uh, I, in fact, I only hear him say good things about President Xi. I never hear him say anything really bad about him. I think one time he called him an enemy. But other than that, given what he said about other people, he's been pretty nice to President presidency, it's right? pretty low bar right. that you're giving him. But, but, no, but my point is that that fight is a much bigger fight. That's a fight for the American people, it is, but he's the not inventors, fighting the workers. I totally get what you're saying, but conceptually, that's not what his rhetoric's about. It's about why tariffs are a good thing and the farmers are okay with it and it's only going to be short that's term a and they're getting hurt more. But that's a it's political argument. The underpinning of what he's doing is he believes that American inventors and American manufacturers have been treated unfairly by the Chinese who are stealing our intellectual property from us and not compensating. Well, you're not going to get an argument on that. Right. So my, so my point right. to you is that I think there have been real times when this president has argued on matters of principle. But what happens in the environment we have now is that even reasonable people like you, and we've known each other for a long time, and I know you're a reasonable guy, you know, it gets obscured because of the, the heat of the rhetoric and the unwillingness to say that someone is not my enemy, he's my adversary. And there's a huge difference in that. And that's what we need to get back to in politics. I'm not going to, you know, listen, I didn't vote for Barack Obama twice. But when he came to New Jersey and he did his job and he said, I'm going to help you, and he followed through with it, you're damn right I'm going to say nice things about him because he deserved it. And that was your job. And and by the way, my number one job was not to be Mitt Romney's surrogate but to be the governor. Let me take a break. Let's come back and let's talk about what the initiative is and what you think can get done and how you're going to do it. Great. All right. Gov, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you, Chris. We'll take a quick break. You heard what we're going to do. Let's get after it. You want to have the conversation later? I'm happy to have it, buddy. But until that time, sit down and shut up. All right. Now, Governor Chris Christie was known for a lot of things when he was at New Jersey. Attitude was one of them. But now the point he's making to us is civility is about a lack of animus. You can have attitude, but not animus, not animosity. Now, you know the obvious one. You're starting an initiative on civility. You were the tough guy. Why you? This is what drives people in political life crazy is when you show a clip like that. Because if you showed the 45 seconds before that, When the guy was standing up and interrupting, that was a Sandy anniversary event. Mm -hmm. And on the first year anniversary of Sandy, and I offered to the guy, I said, listen, if you have a problem, let's come over and see my staff. I'll come over and meet with you after the event to try to help you and work you through. There's 45 seconds of me saying, I want to help you, but we can't do it in front of 400 people here. It became clear to me after I offered that, and he just kept yelling and screaming that, like, he didn't want that. Right. What he wanted was just to disrupt the event. So at that point, you have to make a decision, and you have to say, like, okay, you're going to be that way? Well, then you're going to get hit back. The, the difference of what I'm talking about is that didn't ever affect 
my ability to get things done. If you talk to the Senate president in New Jersey or to the two people who were speaker in New Jersey, we'd have our back and forth. One time, the, the Senate president in New Jersey on the front page of the state's largest paper said he was going to punch me in the head. Now, like I knew he wasn't right. and he was venting and he was playing to his base. But after that, we got in a room and we resolved the issue. So explain this to people, because, again, I understand this a lot better because we grew up uh, yep. the same way. Full disclosure, the governor is friends with my brother, uh, the governor of New York right now, which, by the way, is a testament to civility in and of itself, because <laughs> there were ever two alpha males that shouldn't have gotten along. It would have been you guys, too. But the opposite became true because you bonded on a personal basis and you trusted each other. They'll say, hold on a second. You're a tough guy. Uh, you made political traction on being tough. Right. You kept the media at bay because they were scared of you. They were nervous. That's why they put gotcha clips out like that yeah. about you. Um, you're having it both ways. What did you learn? What is the difference between you bringing a tough guy attitude to situations and civility? To get things accomplished, you have to show people that you're tough and you're willing to fight. If they think you're going to roll over every time, then no one's going to be in incentivized to compromise when you're principally at difference. So Republicans and Democrats have principal differences about the way government should operate and what its proper role and function is and how that manifests itself. The difference is, are you willing to get into the room, develop a personal relationship with the person on the other side of the table, on the other side of the aisle? And are you willing to use that personal relationship as a way to get things done, which means compromising? And so what we're, what we're missing in today's environment, in my view, is A, um, we're not willing to sit down with the other side. B, we're not willing to take the risk of developing personal relationships. And as a result, C, can never happen, which is compromise. That's why Obamacare passes with no Republican votes, why the tax cut passes with no Democrat votes. They're afraid because they don't trust each other. And the only way to really get to true bipartisanship is to be willing to take the risk to trust each other. The line, you get the government you deserve. Yep. What is the incentive for someone to... Be high road, sit down with the other side, compromise when it's being articulated from the highest seat of power, as that is a recipe for weakness. Because you can do what I just did in that clip, which is when you have somebody who's a complete. And by the way, that guy wound up running twice for the state assembly as a Democrat after that and losing both times. He had a political agenda. You have to, as a, as a public official, make that discernment. Now, I'll tell you where I made mistakes. Like, there was one time in a town hall meeting where a guy was going after me, and I called him a jerk. Yep. Wrong thing to do. Mm. I apologized to him for it afterwards. There are times when we're human. We're going to lose control of our temper. And especially when you're in a stressful job like governor or president or speaker, you're going to do that. The apology part matters, though. It does matter. And, and, and there's no question that what we've also lost of late— not only from the president, but from people in Congress, too, is and at the state level um, in some places, the, the ability to be able to admit I made a mistake. OK, I was wrong and I'm moving on. And it doesn't make me lesser. In fact, it makes me more. 100%. So so when I when I apologize to the Navy SEAL who I called a jerk, that doesn't make me a lesser person. But on the other hand, if a guy's going to act like that and you're in public life, there is a moment where you have to say enough is enough. If that's who if that's who you are. So when did the initiative start? It's at Seton Hall University. Right. How can people find out about it? Well, people can find out about it. Um, it's, it's been publicized all over. We have a website, the Christie Institute for Public Policy. And what what we're going to start is three weeks from tonight. We're going to start with a conversation between me and someone you're familiar with, the governor of New York. 
Wow. Um, now that's going to be a brawl. Well, it'll be fabulous, right? <laughs> and and the great thing about about Governor Cuomo and I was that we dealt with each other on a personal level on issues both political and policy. And we were candid with each other. We were honest with each other. And then we executed and kept our word to each other. Now, we didn't always agree on everything. He raised the minimum wage, for instance, in in the New York airports. I didn't think it was necessary in the New Jersey airports. We disagreed on that. He did his thing. I did mine. I didn't then come out and say, oh, you know, Andrew Cuomo is a crazy liberal. And he didn't come out and say I was a heartless SOB. That's where things start to get out of control. He said to me, I disagree with the governor. I said, well, I disagree with Governor Cuomo. That's the end of that. Next mm-hmm. issue. Because we had bigger things to do. And think about what happened. And we'll talk about this in three weeks. Some of the biggest infrastructure projects in the history of our two states happened because we worked together. The Gothels Bridge. The Bayonne Bridge the expansion of LaGuardia Airport, the modernization of Newark Airport, a PATH train from lower Manhattan to Newark Airport being built now. All those things happened because he and I worked together and cooperated. We didn't agree on everything. I'm sure we never voted for the same person for president. Mm. But we can't allow that to define who we are. And what the Institute wants to do is to bring people like that together. Um, It's not always going to be me involved. We'll bring other people in for quarterly lecture series on these issues to try to say you can have an adult conversation about this and disagree and And not kill each other. While I get the angle and I had to play to it about it being you, it's actually you're the right guy to do it. You know, Seton Hall, New Jersey University, Um, you're the right guy to do it because you are a tough guy and you want civility. And it shows that. Uh, that kind of dimension can exist at the same time in politics. I wish you very well with Thank it. Thank you. Our country needs it, Chris. Yeah, 100%. We've got to get better than where we are right we now. We do. Governor, you're always welcome here. Thank you, Thank you very much. Good luck Thanks with for the initiative. Me. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. All right, so back to the storm. A uh, lot of people, part of the story is, where are my loved ones? Okay, you saw with Patrick Oppen, uh down there in uh, Great Bahama why they can't find anybody. We have an update to a story that many of you have been asking about. A young woman who's desperate to find her family. News ahead. So let's just talk about the fake storm map here for a second. It's now an example of something much more important than this president's seeming inability to own a mistake is a case study of exactly what not to do in a crisis. So first, the press secretary says this president was getting hourly updates on where Dorian was headed and where. Remember that hourly updates. This is while he was golfing uh, throughout the holiday weekend. This is what the maps looked like on Sunday morning. That's the actual map, okay? There is no other map. This is the map. The storm's path had shifted north days earlier. So now it looked like the storm would just skim Florida's Atlantic coast, thankfully. At the time, there was a 5 to 10% possibility that a small sliver of Alabama could see tropical storm force winds, maybe. If you look at it, that's what the map says. Never a direct hit. Same possibility for Washington, D.C. and Delaware and New Jersey. But here's what the president tweeted. In addition to Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia and Alabama will most likely be hit much harder than anticipated, looking like one of the largest hurricanes ever. Already Category 5. Be careful. God bless everyone. By the way, right sentiment. He just got something wrong and the map shows it. Proof. 20 minutes after the president's tweet, the National Weather Service, not the most partisan place in the world, said this out. 
Alabama will not see any impacts from hashtag Dorian. We repeat, no impacts from Hurricane Dorian will be felt across Alabama. The system will remain too far east. Why the clarification? So that you don't freak out people in and around Alabama, because clearly the National Weather Service took the president's tweet as wrong. So instead of just being quiet or, God forbid, admitting the error, this president doubles down an hour later. It may get a little piece of a great place. It's called Alabama, and Alabama could even be in for at least some very strong winds and something more than that it could be. This just came up, unfortunately. It did not just come up. He gets something wrong. He gets corrected. He gets offended, apparently, doubles down, creates concern in a state where there need be none, distracts the conversation from the places and people who need notice, and then does something that is right out of a B comedy. That was the original uh, chart, and you see it was going to hit uh, not only Florida, but Georgia. It could have uh, was going toward the Gulf. That was what we what was originally projected. It's a Sharpie line. Someone drew it to extend the cone out to Alabama. Are you serious? Drawing a mustache on someone's photo is more subtle. Look at poor DHS acting secretary McAleen and all the serious work he has to do. And there he is trying to touch the tainted map as little as he can. Then, just now, we're told the president directed some poor rear admiral to say the president was given a briefing on Sunday that had a model that showed Alabama could get some Dorian exposure. Look at the models from Sunday again. You see wind advisories, but there is no major storm impact. He loses on a fact check, period. Now the big question, who cares? Two ways to look at it. One, no one cares another discrepancy. POTUS wasn't right, but what's so wrong with being off and spreading extra caution in a storm? There was a chance of getting some nasty winds. Better safe than sorry, right? Right? Why does the media have to chase everything? Leave him alone. Let him be himself. Or people are piling up dead. Real problems are mounting that deserve attention and concern and urgency and focus. You are literally in the middle of a hurricane. And this president is all about defending himself and his erroneous claim, fake maps, compelling people to justify his claims and not really focusing on the people who should be getting help, which is what a leader does. Oh, he's just fighting back against what? The truth? Even if he were right and he was wrong, you really think this was the time and this is the way for a president to act. I argue this. You can't. You can't support doing this this way during this time. It is not on us. He is the leader of the free world. It begins with him. This is not strength. It is arrogance. It does not deserve respect because it is inherent disrespect for you and the oath of his office. And if you think it isn't a big deal, that only reinforces the point. If he will go to this length to justify something this small, At a time like this, what else will he do? Be honest, we know the answer. 
Don't believe the crap you see from these people, the fake news. What you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. Look, and that is just a touch of what we've learned. He'll mislead you about everything from crowd size to how we're containing children. Celebrations after 9-11 to Russian interference. It is easy to ignore, but what you ignore, you empower. And what we see here is proof that the people around this president and those in his party have created a hurricane of hypocrisy that is every bit as threatening as any storm. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I have an update on a story you're going to want to hear. Next. So on Tuesday night, you remember 20-year-old Romia Roll? She came on the show asking to help find her family in the Bahamas. Here's a little bit. The last we've heard from them, from them were, was days ago, um, and now we're getting information trickling in from one or two settlements. But like I said earlier, there are nine settlements in the far northern end of Abaco, and it seems as if our relatives have just washed off the planet, like we're not hearing anything from them. Good news, Romia contacted us tonight. Her family has been located. All are safe. But there are thousands still looking. So please stay connected. Thank you for watching. CNN Tonight with D. Lemon starts right now. You know, D, we like to give quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.